0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 64. Are you looking for an in-depth data science project to practice your skills on? Or perhaps you would like to add new tools to your Python web development projects instead? This week on the show, David Amos is back, and he's brought in another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. David shares an article about how to go about detecting deforestation from satellite images. He covers how a data science team built a machine learning solution to do just that using fast AI for the modeling and Streamlit to create a dashboard. We also discuss a real Python article about building a blog using Django, Vue.js and GraphQL. GraphQL is a great tool to enhance your API to make it more flexible. The step-by-step project walks you through turning your Django blog data models into a GraphQL API. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including The tools and tech used to run a one-woman hardware company, visualizing data in Python using plot.scatter, why the sad face when using black, how to iterate over data frame rows, and should you? PipX is now a PyPA member project and real-time lossless audio compression in Python with PyFlack. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's app platform. All right, let's get started. The real Python podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com.
1: Hey, David. Welcome back. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back.
0: All right. we got a whole bunch of PyCoders goodness here. Yeah. I'm going to start off mine this week talking about real Python article from previous guest, Dane Hillard. Dane Hillard was on in episode 49. He was talking about his book practices for the Python pro and kind of what makes the term professional developer. And near the end of the episode, he dove into something he was interested in learning about and working with, which was GraphQL. And I guess, He was probably already starting to work on this article at that point. And uh, this is another step-by-step article on real Python. So it's not a super deep dive into the technology, like describing it in, in sort of like uh, research on that. It's much more of an implementation and learning how to use this and set it up and kind of get your chance to play with a lot of this technology. And so it's called build a blog using Django, which we've covered multiple times. But then the next two commas are Vue, which is a JavaScript library, kind of similar to React in some ways, and then GraphQL, which is what he was talking about briefly at the end of the episode. He was mentioning that he was interested in this query language, and I was not that familiar with it, and I've learned a lot more about it, and um, I'll include some additional resources. Um, There's a, a JavaScript Sort of centric podcast, um, web development podcast called Syntax, and they have an episode where they talk about GraphQL in a lot more detail. Um, there's a lot of information out there. It sort of originally developed in the Facebook camp, and it's open source. And you know, since 2018, it's become a pretty popular way of sharing APIs. Mm-hmm. And those of you who've maybe played around with APIs a little bit there's sort of this problem of having to set up an endpoint for everything you kind of want to access or the reverse of it is you set up an api and then it dumps like this huge amount of data back at you and it would be nice to be able to kind of uh, you know sort through that and sort of query that and narrow it down and that's really the idea behind graphql and it's hard to really explain in this format It, it V- very much looks like JSON. Um, it's, it's a, it, the querying is very JSON-like in, in the sense that you're specifying the attributes and things that you want to, to pull out of this information. But it's, it's pretty neat, and it allows you to move beyond like having all these separate endpoints and, and and the pile of information you get back and you can kind of specifically ask for what you're looking for. And then you can use it on the client side, requesting it, but you can also... So like if you know, want to talk to other uh, tools that are out there are using GraphQL, or you can use it and set it up on your own on the server side. and kind of interestingly, this tutorial takes you through kind of setting up both sides. It starts out with really just getting going in Django and and you know setting up the architecture there and and using that as your initial like layout. you not only install Django and get it set up, you create some simple models for a blog that Go a little further in the sense that they now have like okay, there's an author and some additional fields that that makes sense inside their publishing dates and things like that. Um, kind of you know fairly standard, but you know more than the usual. And you can kind of see why why you may want to to do that to be able to see all this extra information you might want to look through. Once you get the Django block set up, you set up the admin, and we have some other additional courses on this that kind of dive into the admin side where you can kind of customize you know how it looks and feels. And what kinds of things that you want people to be able to uh, enter from the admin side, and then jumps right in. And step three, setting up this thing called Graphing Django, and so that's the library to sort of do the you know requesting and talking between Django and the GraphQL services. And then eventually you get into the step where you're going to be installing Vue JS and setting up a view router to help with this. And that's where you're kind of delving much deeper into JavaScript and working with it. And again, like all our tutorials, the, the code's all there. So you can either, as you work along, copy and paste the code from the article as you're working, but this, it's all also available in the GitHub repository. So you can kind of compare what you've created and, and check it all out. So anyway, so eventually you're kind of building up this router and then you're creating the the separate view, what are called components. And they're very similar, in my opinion, to like, you know, the models and things like that. But once you kind of get it set up, there's this, there's like these two different sort of endpoints that you're setting up. Your server will have a slightly different port than what's happening uh, from the Django side. So like 8,000 versus 8080. 80, and so you're kind of talking back and forth on your local machine, kind of, uh, you know, fetching data and pushing it back and forth. It's, a really fun kind of way to kind of explore and learn a little bit more about this stuff and see how not only how you might implement Vue, but this very advanced, you know, way of working with APIs that really looks like, you know, kind of the future of how you could work with APIs in a much more elegant fashion of like getting to the specific things that you want and then also from your side as a developer it's much easier to sort of update and change your api just by sort of restructuring the code that's kind of inside there in the graphql language stuff that you're working with so i think it's a neat one to check out
1: yeah i really like this step by step project format and you know we've got more of these coming down the pipeline and you're right this really isn't you know these this style of article is not really about teaching you about the different Technologies as much as it is showing you how to combine things you might already know about into an actual project, right? Which I think you know fulfills a need that kind of goes beyond just like a tutorial on you know just Vue itself or just GraphQL. You really integrate those things and see how they all uh, fit together in an example project, and it could be a launching point for you to then go on and, and create uh, your own thing. So right, so yeah, it's it's definitely. Fulfilling a different need than like, you know, it kind of assumes, for example, you know something about Django, you know something about Vue, maybe you know something about GraphQL. It's not really necessary because you can kind of copy and paste and follow along. And Dane does a great job of sort of showing you at each step, like what your project structure should look like, like what folders and files you should have and where they are. So you can, if, if you don't really know too much about Vue or JavaScript, you can still make it through the end of the project and have something that's working but yeah it's just a great way to to see how different things integrate with each other and get an example project going
0: yeah i really like the idea of like standing stuff up and then being able to, to sort of poke at it you know so right if you were to then go and look at other resources to learn more about Vue or to learn more about graphql now you have this working project and you're now able to try those techniques out on your own services that you've set up. Yeah. And can sort of customize them. And so I, I think that's a, a nice practice. For sure. More than just sort of following the step by step, you know, which is always, you know, good to kind of get the muscle memory of typing things in.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So
0: what's your first one you got?
1: First one I got is called Detecting Deforestation from Satellite Images. This one comes from Andre Ferreira. It's a full stack deep learning project, and it's sort of similar to what we just talked about with uh, Dane's Django View GraphQL. It's kind of a end to end like we're building this project together. It's not quite the same kind of step by step format that we have on Real Python. This this one is a uh, medium article on the Towards Data Science blog. Yeah, but it's it's a really good example of again like how you would approach putting together a data science machine learning project end to end, like starting with they even start with uh, for example, like, okay, what data set are we gonna use? They investigate a couple of different data sets and, and they make a decision and they explain why they picked that particular data set, and then what uh what model they're gonna use, like what what package are they gonna use for the for the model, for the machine learning. How are they going to present the information and the results? What kind of dashboard are they going to have? It it just is the whole nine yards. The article is not incredibly technical in terms of there's not a lot of code in the article. They've got links to the project repository on GitHub. So you can go and you can look at all the code, but it really focuses more on the decision making process in this and sort of like what they were thinking about. They're trying to build sort of a minimum viable product. Of something that could be used to detect where deforestation was occurring from satellite imagery. And they start by looking at kind of a plan for the project. They say, okay, so what 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 does this thing need to do? And of course, that you know is a great first step for any project. You know, sit down and sort of map out like, okay, what is it that we actually have to get done here? What are kind of the key points? So they talk about, you know, for this, for this MVP, the, the minimum viable project. What, uh, you know, what what do we need to have? Well, we need to have a model that's trained and has acceptable performance on detecting deforestation. We need to have a dashboard to show the predictions on the data set. We want to have a GitHub package. We want to do some hyperparameter tuning that is, you know, optimization to improve the model. And we want to have a robust data storage solution for the project. So these are kind of like the minimal goals they set out ahead of time. They talk about some like things that would be nice to have, things like what they call uh, out-of-domain or distribution shift analysis. Like, they, you know, if they have the time, it'd be nice to study the model's performance on data that's different from what it was trained on to kind of see how it works there. They'd like to have tests for their package. So yeah, they talk about, you know, kind of these nice-to-haves and really lay out like a roadmap for like, okay, this is what we want to get done for the project. So it's really cool to see that, you know, the things they're thinking about, what they're looking for, Uh, Like I said, it's really kind of a guide to like, how would you approach building a project? So then they go into, okay, how are we going to do this? Like, what are we, what are we going to look at? Um, Where's our data going to come from? So they talk about, you know, doing a bunch of research, looking at a bunch of different data sets. And this is not, you know, exploratory data analysis. This is just like, just researching what data sets are available, maybe looking at kind of the raw data, just to kind of see like what's in there and might it work. They narrow it down to three data sets. There's a data set about, of images from the Amazon from space. There's one called the WIDS Datathon 2019, which has got oil palm plantation detection in Borneo. And they've got another data set called Towards Detecting Deforestation, which is a data set for detecting coffee plantations in the Amazon rainforest. After they, they look at this, they narrow it down to uh, this Amazon data set, which is looking at the human footprint in the Amazon rainforest. And uh, they decided to go with that data set for training the model. Then they get into the exploratory data analysis and data processing phase. So they, they kind of talk a little bit about what they were looking for in this data set, what was available, some of the plots they were making to sort of understand what's there, things like tagging, stuff like that. So they really get into how they were approaching the exploratory data analysis. And they do some of that on some of the other data sets too. And they kind of compare notes and they sort of explain why they picked the, the Amazon data set. Then they get into the model, how, you know, what sort of model are they actually going to use here? And do they need to build this model from scratch? Is there something available? They decide to go with Fast AI, which is a really cool project. From there, they, they kind of talk about, okay, you know, what kind of, how are we going to set this up? Like what Fast AI model are we actually going to use? They use something called the ResNet 50 model which is a convolutional neural network with 50 layers. They show a little bit of code on how they're kind of setting this up and working with the the fast AI and kind of showing how fast AI takes care of a lot of things for you. So nice little code snippet, just showing how they can kind of quickly get this set up. Then they get into, okay, we've got our model, we've got our data, how are we going to display the results, right? So what about this dashboard? And what are some of the things we want to include? They end up, deciding to go with Streamlit, which I believe we've talked about on the podcast in the past. Yeah. A really cool library for making dashboards. Again, they're just discussing this whole decision making process in all of this. Then they get into the data storage. They end up going with some solutions on a Google Cloud and talk about how that's integrated and everything. Yeah, it's just a kind of a walkthrough end-to-end, like, you know, here's what we want to do and here's how we're going to go about building it and and why we made the decisions we made. So it's really, you know, if if you've been studying data science and machine learning and you're still kind of maybe stuck on like okay, how do I actually put all this together into a full project? Well, this is a really great example of how you do that and the kinds of questions you should be asking and the thought process behind making some of those decisions. So, yeah, hands off to Andre. This is uh fantastic overview and article and a a really great resource.
0: Nice. DigitalOcean's App Platform is a new platform-as-a-service solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let App Platform do all the heavy lifting related to infrastructure. Get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. <laughs> this week I have articles and and features that are all <laughs> for previous <laughs> guests, Yeah, that's it true. seems like. So um, this next one, <laughs> this next one is from Stargirl Flowers, who is on episode 5 we were talking about circuit python at the time and she has created quite the little hardware company <laughs> in the last year it's kind of amazing yeah uh, and it's getting she's getting her stuff uh, distributed in multiple uh, places now and so she decided to create a post sort of explaining and the title of it is the tools and tech i use to run a one woman hardware company so she's been making these Boutique synthesizers and Eurorack modules, and there's quite a bit that kind of goes into sort of turning it into a company and, you know, not only just like it being like just a small project of designing hardware, but also, you know, in a lot of cases, those pieces of hardware uh, need microcontrollers and the microcontrollers need firmware then there's the whole levels of like documentation and, you know, building things and so forth. And how can a single person do all that? And so it's a really neat article kind of diving into it. It's, it, it touches on Python quite a bit, but it also just sort of kind of looks at like as a technological thing, like kind of thought processes that would go into it. So it, it sort of starts off with like kind of an overall philosophy. And she has a quote from Gunpei Yokoi and his quote is lateral thinking with withered technology. And that's kind of her philosophy is sort of following that same idea is to leverage things that she already knows and is familiar with and can be fluent with, but also look at things that are not necessarily the cutting edge all the time. Right, And what helps with that is not only can they mainly be more understood because they've been used in other projects or they've been documented. And then also In a lot of cases, they're, you know, already kind of being maintained by others. Exactly. And so that really led to the types of microcontrollers that she's using. And the main ones that she's been focusing on and and, and literally, you know, choosing the chips to do this, they're from a company called Microchip. And the series is the SAM, S-A-M-D series. There's like three that she focuses on. There's like a nice table kind of explaining, you know, everything from like the processor speed to like sort of ins and outs that they can handle in communications, and then also like how much RAM they can have, which is really small, <laughs> so thinking about like you know trying to
1: program these things, yeah, measured in kilobytes,
0: yeah, they're very, very
1: small, <laughs> yeah,
0: so these are similar microcontrollers to what's in the Arduino zero, which is a very popular kind of like you know prototype board and stuff to play around, and then the Adafruit boards, which i'm gonna my project that I'm kind of messing around with, uh uses this m four style board. Um, they also have an m0 board and there's a you know a few others that she kind of leads out to so goes into that whole reasons for choosing those and and why working with them and then she talks about uh, hardware design which she did go into in our our episode talking about this thing called kicad uh, k i cad and it's an open source uh, design tool for Designing circuit boards, and I got into electronics y- years ago, and I was playing around with the idea of building like guitar pedals and and things like that. And and I had this ancient book from a, a guy who's really famous in the you know, DIY electronics space back when I got into it, and his name's Craig Anderton, and he had this great guitar projects book. And unfortunately, most of the kits that he's talking about there you know, would use parts that would be probably hard to find now <laughs> and things that have been replaced and so forth. But if I wanted to take some of his designs and I wanted my own, you know, board design with certain layouts and so forth, uh, this thing called KeyCat is really neat for doing that. And she's had experience creating this uh, Genesis uh, synth called the Genesynth. And then it led to her two other projects. And now um, she's got like two a synthesizer one called Caster and Pollux, and then uh, another new one that she's working on. Anyway, so KiCAD's a nice tool for that if you're interested in you know, designing actual circuit boards and hardware for that. And then it's surprising that uh, with the resources now, getting prototype boards or actually getting actual printed boards is doesn't require you to make thousands of them, which is really nice too. Uh, then it goes into firmware, and she is using C, which she has a background in, not you know, offshoots of C, but actual just pure C. And then um, talks about the compiler that she's using there goes into firmware libraries. And and again, this goes into the withered idea, the idea that using some existing firmware libraries will be helpful <laughs> for documentation and building upon. She has links to all the repositories. I don't know if I mentioned it, but she considers the whole company an open source mm. company. So the the designs are open source the firmware is open source like she wants to you know get yeah. back to the community in the same way that you know she's getting it in this way which is really neat so you can kind of you know you know a lot of people ask about like checking out code and so forth this is a really neat one especially it gets into this idea of build systems and running those compilers and you know outputting firmware um she uses python and a, a build system called ninja and then kind of wraps up kind of talking about python based tooling that she also uses and then kind of dives into circuit python and her first two projects the big honking button and soul are both these circuit python platforms yeah which is it's a really neat platform and i I hope to be talking about it a lot more we talked about it in that episode but the idea that you can just plug in a usb port uh, of your computer and you know up pops up you know, a little .py file that you could just start writing Python into, and yeah. then send it over, and it, it it starts working on it. It's just so cool, you know. And then when you unplug it, you know, if you have a power source or what have you, you're you're running that code. It's it's really slick. Then it kind of wraps up on documentation and creating user guides. And she's a fan of Markdown and using uh, this tool called MkDocs to convert the Markdown into web pages. And she's hosting them up on GitHub Pages because it's all just static files uh, sort of stuff she hasn't (laughs) dived into the latest javascript stuff that we were talking about earlier she's trying to avoid some of the Node.js ecosystem it's just huge and hard to stay on top of and if that's not really your focus then that makes sense and so she's created her own little javascript library for working with things that that are useful for what she's trying to document and show and and you know create in there and that involves uh, working with audio elements, you know, to actually play little audio snippets, creating forms, and then another tool which allows there to be uh, web MIDI playback. Yeah. And I'm I'm interested in that one to see kind of what's there. But so uh, her winter JS uh, JavaScript library is up on her GitHub stuff too. So it's just a neat article kind of diving into all that sort of stuff if you're interested in the electronic sides of things, but also the idea of like, okay, if you're going to you know, create sort of an open source, not only project or company, like some good best practices there. And and she's been a maintainer of projects for a long time and was a PSF fellow the previous year. And so anyway, neat article, check it out.
1: One thing I want to point out on, uh, on Stargirl's article is that, and she kind of explains this kind of throughout, there's little mentions of this, you know, all the decisions that she's making, are coming from a standpoint of I'm working on this by myself. I have to do I have to do everything. Yeah. And there's a really I think interesting comment here at the end of, of the javascript section of, of her article that says, you know, if you're a javascript developer and you go digging into my javascript code, you might find some of my style choices offensive. I use four spaces and a snake case, right? So like right. and you know, <laughs> and she says, I do this so that I'm consistent with the C in Python code, which makes context switching much easier for me. And to me, that is like, it's really great advice, right? If if you're a single developer and you have to deal with multiple languages and you've got common style that is valid in those different languages, why not use it? So that when you're context switching, like it's just, easier to deal with like the, 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 the formatting looks similar, just easier to digest. And yeah, you know, if, if you've got a team of people that are working on this and they're kind of isolated from the people that are working on the other components of the ecosystem, then sure, you know, they can follow the style guides and, you know, whatever best practices they, they decide on and everything. But, uh, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of, you know, it sounds sort of, in a sense, defensive, kind of like she's, you know, she's defending her choices from, you know, potentially right. people saying, look, this is not the way you should write JavaScript. But I also feel like it's a really powerful lesson there for for folks that are in a position of, look, you're trying to do something by yourself. You need to maximize your productivity. And to do that, you have to make decisions that make it easier for you <laughs> to, to context switch and to maintain things yourself and all of that. So anyways, just thought that was a really kind of powerful lesson and something that, uh, you know, there might be kind of a mentality of like, Oh, I'm learning JavaScript now. So I need to like, I need to write my JavaScript according to whatever the the current standards are and everything. It's like, well, you know, if you're on a team that's doing that, or you're trying to get a job at a company, like, yeah, you probably want to be aware of that stuff. But you know, if you, if you're just trying to like get a job done, right. Like focus on what maximizes your productivity. That's, that's the most important thing.
0: Yeah, I I think I missed one of the other main themes that I should have included also is the idea that uh, across the board, thematically, the idea is, again, for a single person trying to do everything is to, you know, literally not use up as much energy (laughs) and resources and be as, you know, All those things. You only have so much time. You only have so much energy. Exactly. But in the same way, like materials-wise, if you can keep reusing the same materials, that's great. But she wants her projects and the things that she builds to be, you know, like with this. We're dealing with this global chip shortage, right? Yeah. So if you were to use a project like the Soul project that she has, that is this reprogrammable sort of control voltage to MIDI tool. But if you can go in and make it do your own thing by reprogramming it, then you're not buying additional hardware not, you know, like throwing something else into the dump. You know, you're actually looking at ways that you could own this hardware a little more and and reuse it and and modify it. And that's something that she kind of really focuses a lot on throughout the article, too, which. Uh, I kind of missed earlier some sustainability. Yeah, there. totally. Yeah. Like just you know, there's a sustainability as a human being as far as your own life and time and energy, but also just you know from hardware also, which I think is a really kind of neat focus too. Yeah, cool
1: for sure. So what, what do you got next? Next up on my list is another Real Python article. It's called Visualizing Data in Python Using uh, plt.scatter. This comes from Stephen Gruppetta. and this is kind of an introduction to creating scatter plots. Uh, it actually it goes a little bit beyond just an introduction, and you learn a lot about making and configuring and customizing scatter plots in Matplotlib. It starts with you know you know how do you create a scatter plot? What is a scatter plot? There's this function called scatter that you use to make scatter plots, and it gives a very basic example of of how you do that. Here's some data points, and uh, you know let's let's plot them. So he's got basically an example where you've got a cafe that's selling six different types of bottled orange drinks, and the owner wants to understand the relationship between the price of the drinks and how many of each one that uh, that they sell. So you you plot price against sales per day, and you get the scatter plot. You can kind of see a relationship there. So you get this basic example. One of the things that I learned w- working uh, with Stephen on this this article and in the outline and technical review phases was that. There's a difference in performance between using the plot function, which is kind of the general plotting tool in, uh, in Matplotlib versus the scatter function. Uh, so you can create this exactly the same scatter plot as, you know, as far as the final product goes, it looks exactly the same using either the plot function or the scatter function. But there is a performance difference and plot is actually more performant. So that that was something i wasn't aware of and hadn't even really thought about it just seemed like okay if i'm m- making a scatter plot i want to use the scatter function right well in probably 90% of the cases you do you want to use scatter but if if you really need the performance then you want to use a plot if you, if you if the performance is important and you don't need all the customization that a scatter provides then the plot function is going to be what you you want to use? It's it's something on the order of like seven times faster wow. than uh, than scatter. So that was something that was really interesting and something new that I learned uh, from the article. From there, Stephen goes into talking about uh, how you can customize things, how you can you know change the size of the the dots in your scatter plot, the color, the shape, and the transparency. And the transparency aspect is something that is really neat because in a scatter yeah. plot you have these dots <laughs> plotted all over the place and there's in in you know unless your data set is like really sparse you're probably going to have a lot of overlap and you might not know like what the density of like like how many dots are there really in this region of of the scatter plot if you adjust your transparency a little bit and make the dots semi-transparent then all of a sudden you you gain like an an extra dimension almost into your uh, data where you get to see like oh there's actually there's a lot like of, of points in this region and it looks really dense and that's something uh, an important piece of information that you can get there so adjusting the transparency is one of those neat little tips that, uh, that you can you can get with the uh, scatter plots he talks about color maps in in matplotlib lib and and how you can use them with scatter plots and customize all that kind of stuff and so yeah really just just uh, really dives into you know how to use this the scatter function what all the different options are available to you and how you can customize it. So, it's a really nice it's it's not too long, it's also not super short either. It's kind of a nice medium length article. It's got a, I think a really appropriate level of depth where it's like if you're if you're brand new to matplotlib and you're looking for some, you know, information about scatter plots, this is a a fantastic resource. If you're looking to dive a little bit deeper into scatter plots, then this is also a fantastic resource. So it's really, I think, something, you know, if if this is something you're doing day in and day out, you'd probably want to bookmark this and just kind of keep coming back to it as a a nice uh, reference.
0: Yeah, it's kind of amazing with data visualization. You know, you learn these sort of like thematic elements, but going into each style of plotting, there's so many ways that you can apply it and you know like things like you're mentioning of graphing across different colors to kind of show another dimension there the opacity and you know the you know how transparent things are and and how you can make it seem like things are stacking up and adding these additional dimensions and then also just you know ways of like interacting and having the legends and other things kind of work with what you're trying to do it's uh it's definitely a deep subject. <laughs> so that's kind of nice to, to sure. see this sort of deep dive into one specific area. And I'm sure it kind of maps across additional the ones that you might want to play with in your data visualizations. Yeah. My next one is, again, from previous guests. <laughs> this is from Wukas uh, Langa. And we talked about his Project Black on episode seven. He actually mentioned this briefly in our conversation, but this is a nice article really distilling his thoughts on it. And he was kind of mentioning in sort of an offhand way that some people were unhappy with the way sometimes black would look for what they were trying to do. And one of the main ones they were complaining about is this idea of this they call it the sad face d dent. Yeah. And it's pretty common if you have a lot of parameters or you're setting up a list or you're setting up a dictionary to format things where you sort of open up, you know, the in this case, an opening of the parentheses and then closing the parentheses and having those on like a separate line so that all this individual elements that you're you're working with, parameters or, you know, what have you, are on a separate line with a comma and so forth. And then, you know, one line down at the very end of it, you'd be closing that off. And in this case, it would look like a, an unhappy face because it's a closed parentheses and a colon.
1: right? And so... Yeah, for a function or or a class or something like that.
0: Yeah, so when you're defining those things or like an if statement or some other kinds of things where you might see that. And so yeah. um, some people don't like that style, but he explains why it's actually kind of a best practice in some ways. And so there's some things that he says that might surprise you. It kind of follows this sort of, uh, he sums it up with the the consistency that all the bracket pairs are treated equal. So it could be, you know, curly brackets in the case of a dictionary or, you know, square brackets for a uh, list, what have you, but uh, treating them all kind of the same in that style it, it, His other one is readability. Um, the function signature or if statement or while test and so on is going to be clearly delimited from the body of it. Yeah. Which is really much easier to kind of read and look at. And then he goes into developer efficiency, which this is the one that I think was the most surprising to me, but made the most sense to me of like, oh yeah, this is going to save a lot. It it has to do with diffs or, you know, seeing the differences between two, two different files. Yeah. And where you would see this is like, if you have all those elements, you know, maybe they're parameters or whatever that you're sort of explaining in there. And let's say you don't use the practice of putting a comma on the last one. And then you make a change to that last line just adding the comma <laughs> makes that a diff. And so it flags that entire line as a change, then the new line that you've added and then, you know, and, and so forth. So like, if you were just going to change a single thing, like you thought I was just changing this one line, it looks like you're changing like three lines and the article kind of shows that it's a very short article, but it you know kind of graphically shows that really well to kind of explain it and So kind of diving deeper into the idea of the bracket pairs treated equals, like, you know, you can do multi-line lists and dictionary literals when you're calling, you know, functions and, and seeing those and importing, maybe you've seen importing multiple names from a particular library, you know, from this import and then like the parentheses and then have like multiple things that you're bringing in, again, stylistically, just kind of keeping it going through everything want also, I've been doing a bunch of courses about uh, Boolean expressions lately, uh, reviewing them and, and kind of going into them. And the idea of like those really complex sort of compound Boolean expressions sometimes you might have and describing something of like, and this or that or whatever. And having them on separate lines makes it way easier to parse in a lot of cases. And so, and then just blocks of code. In the end, what do you get? You get clearly delimited block header from the body. It's going to minimize the diffs it n- neatly leaves a space also for like return type annotations, which again, if you're doing annotations, it then shows the little sad face and then like your arrow and like this is what it's actually re- you know going to return here, and you can annotate that very clearly outside of the confusion of the whole body of things. It's a nice way explaining like why the auto formatter black is doing this, but also why it's a good practice
1: right, yeah yeah i you know something I just want to add about uh, this isn't necessarily about the the sad face the dent as as he calls it. <laughs> okay. But you know, putting like if you have a long list, yeah. You know, putting each item on its own line has a lot of advantages, and one of the nice things is you can sort of like quickly like comment out. Yeah. Try things. Portions of your list, right? And like, so yeah, there's just a lot of I think advantages to doing that. And yeah, if you measure things in terms of lines of code, you know, this kind of style adds a lot of lines to your code. Right. But, you know, I I think the advantages sort of outweigh that in in a lot of cases. So, so yeah, it's it's a nice little explainer of why <laughs> why there are actually some like yeah. objective benefits to this and it's not purely like a subjective style choice.
0: Yeah, uh, kind of going back to the the data visualization thing, you know, when you're creating these plots and graphs, very often there's like, you know, a mass list of parameters that you're putting into it. Right. And that's a really common thing, what you mentioned of of commenting them out. It's like, okay, well, let me try this without these things and just to be able to throw a comment or like, you know, like we were mentioning the idea of like, you go into do a diff to kind of see what's changed between these things. It's, it's much easier to see that in red. Then it across like the whole body of the thing, and you're having to parse <laughs> yourself yeah, where it is. So, exactly, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It dives into the topic of working with data frames in Python. It's titled Explore Your Data Set with Pandas. The course is based on an article by Rika Horvath. And in the course, Douglas Starns takes you through how to calculate metrics about your data perform basic queries and aggregations, discover and handle incorrect data, inconsistencies, and missing values, and then how to visualize your data with plots. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to wrangle data using pandas, whether you're calculating grades, managing a data science project, calculating statistics, or building dashboards. Our video courses are broken into easily consumable sections. Where needed, we include code examples for the techniques shown. And all the lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on RealPython.com.
1: So, what do you got next? Next one I have comes from someone we featured a couple times now. I think on the on the podcast. Uh, this is Matt Wright. He's got an article over on his blog, Writers.io, called "How to Iterate Over Data Frame Rows and Should You." So this is an interesting article because it kind of ties into something. I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast. Maybe I mentioned it in in one of the news articles or something like that. But Stack Overflow recently did kind of a, uh, some data analysis on data they'd collected about what are some of like the top voted questions and uh, in particular, what's the most copied answer Within a code block, <laughs> and it turns <laughs> right. it turns out that the most copied answer within a code block on the entire site is about iterating over rows of a data frame of a pandas data frame. Yeah. So this is kind of addressing that. You know, it's it's such a common question. It and you know the answer to that question is one of like is the most copied answer on the entire Stack Overflow site, at least you know at this moment. Kind of bears looking into you know, well, should you actually do this? like is this <laughs> yeah. actually a good thing? and you th- you know you think of a data frame in some sense as like a two-dimensional or multi-dimensional array. and a lot of times in programming, you do a lot of iterating over arrays. Well, data frames are not really I mean they're they're more than just an array. That is sort of the underlying data structure. Of them, but they're sort of more than that. It's it's a way of working with data that doesn't require, in most cases, I'd say in in the vast majority of cases, any kind of you know direct iteration. So this article talks about like okay, if you need to iterate over rows, you know here's how to do it. You know here's some ways to to do that, and he and he talks about a couple of different ways to do that, and I'm not going to talk about how they they work i mean you can you can read the article you can see the stack overflow <laughs> answer and uh, and see that but he says okay is this really your best choice and you know it when it when he comes down to it like the the final solution that he comes up with for iterating over and i think i think this goes back to the uh, stack overflow answer is using something called iter rows and says so it seems really easy and you can see why it's the top voted answer because it does exactly what you want. Why would there be any controversy? And it comes down to some, you know, speed and memory. Yeah. When you're working with really large data frames, you know, speed is is very important. And NumPy, which is sort of the underlying library and pandas, all the data frame and everything, they're all implemented as NumPy arrays, kind of at the, at the base level, has some techniques. That they're not specific to NumPy. It's it's really just a general array technique. Something called vectorization, and there's also a kind of a related uh, concept called broadcasting. And this is a way that you can look at things in you know aggregate or sort of perform operations on multiple rows without having to do any kind of looping or iteration. And it's extremely powerful. It's Orders of magnitude faster than just doing a simple, you know, for loop or something like that over this, like it arose. So he gives an example of kind of, he's got this example that he's using throughout the article of scoring things, like giving like letter grades to, to things. And he runs a vectorized example of doing the same operation, assigning these letter scores. And the vectorized thing runs on his computer in about two point seven five milliseconds, whereas the iterose implementation of that takes thirteen point five milliseconds, which is quite a big difference. Yeah. So you're almost five times faster, and that's just with this you know tiny data set. Then it gets into things like you know Python and list comprehensions and some other techniques. There's uh, the apply method on data frames can be used to apply things to multiple rows. And it talks about some different techniques, but, but really it's, you know, I think kind of the point of this article is if you find yourself wanting to iterate over rows in a data frame, you probably need to stop and ask yourself, do I really need to do this? Or is there some better way that's more performant and really more, I don't know what the, the corresponding term for pythonic would would <laughs> would be for like pandas or something but but you know like uh, i guess just more uh, like a be- a better practice you know things like that so so yeah it's it's a really neat article it's really in depth it does cover a lot of ways to iterate over rows cuz you know there might be times you really do need to do that it's i think it's going to be in rare cases but but overall you know there's you have multiple choices in doing something like vectorization which pandas and NumPy together make that pretty simple is often going to be a better choice. And he does give kind of a, an overview of, you know, how do you decide and when should you use these different techniques? So he's got a chart of uh, exploring kind of the runtime of all these different ways of, of doing things and uh, when it might make sense, when it might actually be more performant to do something like you know iter rows or iterating over something and it really comes down to you know how big is your data set and uh, what can you write and maintain easily so those are kind of the two things he he suggests to think about when uh, when looking at this so yeah if, if you use pandas data frames a lot if you found yourself wanting to iterate over rows in a data frame highly recommend checking this article out and getting getting a good look at what all the different options are and how Uh, how vectorization comes into play what that is what that means for performance and how you might go about choosing to do that
0: yeah we have a really good course i'll probably feature it in this week's uh, spotlight about working with data frames and sort of exploring yeah uh, the data inside them and it kind of talks about a lot of those kind of ideas too and awesome the idea of like the series uh, inside there and and lock and iLock and these other kinds of uh, tools that are kind of important to just be familiar with um, as opposed to just brute force (laughs) applying things. Yeah, Right. Cool. So this brings us to projects. And the one that I have is really kind of interesting. It's from Sonos, um, the company that makes a lot of these nice Wi-Fi speakers and uh, other kinds of technological audio projects. And they are working with this codec called FLAC, the Free Lossless Audio Codec, which, you know, if you're an audiophile, you might be familiar with this already because of the idea of, like, you know, not working with MP3s and these other lossy compression things. I don't want to get into that debate here. This is more talking about using FLAC very specifically for their own tools. And so they created their own library called PyFLAC yeah. To be able to use Flack in their sort of data science and measurement processes and so forth. And they, you know, they pick Flack partly because of the idea that it'll reduce the size of things. And the library that they're using that's inside there is written in C. And by converting it to Python, allows them to do what we've covered many times in this this show is the idea of like rapidly developing solutions and trying things out and experimenting. You know the way that data science really, you know, is all about Python. In that way, the idea like quickly trying things out and modifying stuff. Yeah. So why do they need FLAC in this particular case? Why do they need it to be lossless audio? It is a lot of the tools that they're designing are for within these speakers. The speakers can determine the room that you're in. They the speakers have their own microphones. So they can actually analyze their own playback and sort of tune the sound of the speaker to the acoustics of the room. And so that goes beyond like the whole argument of like human hearing and so forth and what gets thrown out that supposedly can't be heard. Here you're really wanting to measure the full spectrum, really get an idea of measurements across all the different surfaces of what's being reflected, what's not, yeah. And so forth. And so it's very important that it is uh really included in this whole thing, even though they you might get into the whole perceptually redundant information idea. But in this case, for the machines measuring it, they, they need it. And their technology is called TruePlay. If somebody has like a Apple product, you might have heard of this thing called the, the HomePod. It had a similar kind of thing where like if you picked it up, it could sense that you've moved it. <laughs> and it would then recalibrate itself to you know where you're moving it in the room. And so their, their technology is very similar in that idea. So the library, by them open sourcing it, uh, allows you to kind of play around with you know, not only doing real-time analysis with Flack in your own Python projects, but also has a command line uh interface. Actually, a couple of things about it. Number one, PyFlac is pip installable, so you can get it actually from PyPi. I'm gonna include the GitHub uh repository. And then one other kind of nice thing is uh just right out of the box. It has a CLI command line interface that you can use with the library to do conversions from a wave to a black file and, and back and forth and it runs on you know all the main operating systems Mac Linux and Windows but also the Raspberry Pi mm. and Raspberry Pi zero cool so if you're looking at using it in you know kind of projects and stuff like that it might be a handy library there which I know a lot of a lot of people are messing around with that kind of stuff and if you're interested in, you know having audio playback and uh, have a fancy player and working with flak files here's a nice tool that Got open source from Sonos, so.
1: Yeah, and actually, I think that it's, you know, if you want to work, like if you just want to read and write FLAC files, there's already an existing solution for that. And I I was just kind of browsing through their announcement article, and it looks like they're using that. It's called PySoundFile. Yeah. But what PyFLAC, I think where it really shines, and they mentioned this, they say uh, there's so many different existing Python implementations for FLAC encoding decoding However, these tend to operate on files rather than real-time streams, which is right. no good for continuous processing. So that's really where PyFlock is focused on that processing continuous streams of of uh, of data. So
0: nice, yeah, and keeping it so that you know <laughs> this data can be huge depending on the
1: oh yeah the sample rates and sure. the bit depth.
0: So um, it kind of gets up there, and so the idea of uh, reducing it is really going to help uh, as far as working with the data. So
1: yeah, and Sonos, you know, is a really interesting company just to kind of throw this out this is not python related but you know the the first real programming job that i had like professional programming job was building these interfaces for audiovisual systems and uh it was not using python actually most of the coding was done in lua but we actually worked with uh with sonos and you know they're they're expensive <laughs> They're pretty yeah. expensive speakers, but I was always pretty impressed with, with what they were able to achieve in their uh, in their their devices. They're a pretty neat little speakers. So yeah, cool stuff. They got a lot of cool stuff going on there.
0: Nice. So what's uh what's your project?
1: Mine is not necessarily a new project. It's been around for a few years now, I think. It's called Pip X. And but I wanted to feature it because they just kind of had a cool news item related to them. That is, they became a member project of the PyPA, which is the Python Packaging Authority. And PipX is a tool for installing and running applications in isolated environments. So you can think of it kind of like Pip. You use it to install packages from PyPI or other sources, basically anywhere that Pip can install from, PipX can also install from that. But in pip, it's just installing into, say, like if if you're just running it sort of globally, uh, it's installing it into like your global environment. There's no isolation or anything. If you're using virtual environments, that's a little bit different. PipX automatically installs packages into an isolated environment. So where this really shines is, let's say you want to install a command line tool from PyPI. You can install that tool in isolation, but still have access to it from the command line and be able to run it like you would uh, normally, which is really cool. That opens up, you know, being able to have potentially different versions of of that tool installed uh, and have access to those. And it makes sure that, you know, any dependencies of that project aren't going to conflict with any dependencies of another package that you've installed, which is another, it can be another thing that can be kind of a, a hassle to deal with when you're installing uh, tools in kind of a global context. So that's a really neat feature of pipx. Another really awesome feature that I think is is kind of uh, maybe the the coolest part of pipx. I don't know. I mean, it's all really kind of a neat neat project. But uh, they have a run command. So to install something from pipx, it just it works just like pip. You know, you do pip install something. Here you would do pipx install something. There's an additional command called pipx run, and that allows you to do a one-off installation to run something. So say you want to try a package out, right? There's some cool new package on PyPI, and you think, "Wow, I want to try this out. See how it works. You know, see if I like it." Well, normally to do that, you'd probably create a new virtual environment, use pip to install it, and then run it. Well, with pipx you can use this run command it will install it in a temporary isolated environment and run whatever you tell it to run so you do pipx run and then you know the package name and then whatever like if you were running it from the command line like you would just pass the options and arguments and everything to it straight away it would run it with all those options and everything that you have and then you would see you know see the execution see it work and then when it's done running, it gets rid of everything for you and leaves the system back the way it was when it started. So, which, which I think is really awesome. That's like, that's a lot of automation going on there and really makes it a nice way to kind of try things out before you decide to install them and, and use them. So that's, that's really cool. And the deal about becoming a, a member of the uh, Python package authority is, is pretty cool. So I, didn't, I I know of the Python packaging authority. They're, they're kind of responsible for maintaining kind of the standards and best practices of packaging things in Python. So, you know, if, if you're curious to know how you would create your own package, you know, the PyPA has a bunch of tutorials and, and things like that that you can look at. They talk about, you know, the different peps involved and, and what the best practices are and what tools to use, uh, things like that. But they, they host these member projects. And when, when that happens, they actually become a part of the PyPA GitHub organization and get hosted there. And I didn't know when I went into this, I didn't really know, like, okay, what else happens? Like, what's the advantage of becoming a PyPA member project other than maybe getting like a little boost in visibility or things like that? Well, there's a pep called pep 609 that sort of lays out the governance model for the PyPA. And they mention PyPA member projects. And one of the things that they provide, one of the goals of the PyPA, is that in the event that a project needs additional support or no longer has active maintainers, then the PyPA will ensure that the given project continues to be supported for users to whatever extent necessary. So it kind of provides some added security and uh to that project you know for, p- for people who are using that they'll know that like okay if 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 something happens to the maintainers they they can't maintain it anymore then it's not going to just die out completely there's still going to be someone there working on it and providing support uh as needed so so that's really kind of a neat deal and and it just i kind of you know i guess it goes to show that pipx is a valued a valued project in the in the community and something that uh they want to ensure, you know, it has uh, some longevity behind it.
0: Yeah, it's nice it, it I'm looking through the other projects that are that are in there in the IPA collection on GitHub and beyond pip <laughs> and uh virtual env and a handful of other ones. They're all these sort of tools for packaging which makes sense and yeah, a lot of familiar names in the people list there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, There's Stargirl and (laughs) Brett and a couple other people I'm hoping to have on the show soon. So great.
1: Yeah. All
0: right. Well, that's a great list of stuff from PyCoders this week. Yeah. Yeah. thanks for coming on the show again and uh, talk to you soon.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. See you around.
0: And don't forget, you can get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. I want to thank David Amos for joining me again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and look forward to talking to you soon.